So I want a show of hands to begin. Uh, how many of you have heard the phrase, or maybe it's part of your own vocabulary, that phrase, tough love? Okay. Well, I kind of figured it would be a fairly common use. Maybe, maybe it's part of your own vocabulary. Um, you can see a parent use it um, in the relationship with a child or a youth or maybe a grown child where there is um, certain behaviors, certain attitudes, and the parent recognizes I cannot love them in all the same ways and even all the ways that I want to love them because of how they're acting. I cannot just enable that kind of activity or that kind of behavior. And so a parent will sometimes have to show tough love. Right? I mean, this can be, this can come up in friendships, loving friendships, where the, the, the love is real, the love is deep. Um, and there's a recognition that someone is straying, out, acting out of step with the gospel, for example. And one cannot just act like it's all good when it's not. And so sometimes there has to be a show of tough love in relationships. And so it really comes down to that a lot of times is where there are certain impediments, certain obstacles that stop us in relationships from our love flowing as freely as we would want it to flow. Though we long for it to flow more freely. We just simply cannot act like everything's okay when it is not okay. In a very real sense, what we're going to behold in our passage in Hosea 3 is God expressing tough love. God showing tough love. But what we're going to see in this passage and what we need to know is that that it's he doesn't show tough love as an end in itself. But he shows tough love in order to prepare the way for a fuller experience of his tender love. And so we're going to look at God's tough love and we're going to look at God's tender love and see how they relate to one another. So his tough love in verses 1 through 4, and then his tender love in this golden verse in verse 5, the culmination of our passage. So let's dive right into chapter 3. It says this, And the Lord said to me, that's Hosea, right? The prophet Hosea. The Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Okay, so right away we notice that Hosea's marriage is at the forefront again, right? Do you remember um, in chapter 1, the first chapters, uh, the first passage in chapter 1, Hosea's marriage is at the forefront, and we learned there, and I reiterated last week, that Hosea's marriage to Gomer was meant to be a picture of God's relationship with Israel. Just as Gomer was unfaithful to Hosea, so too Israel is acting unfaithfully toward God. And we're meant to see that very real parable being played out in front of our eyes in order to make that greater point. And so Hosea's marriage surfaces again, but it's interesting, the language. And the Lord said to me, go again and love a woman. It doesn't say, uh, love your wife. It doesn't say, love Gomer. And so this has led some to say, I wonder if this is a totally different person here, a different wife. Maybe something happened to Gomer and and now he's remarried and this is about him reconciling with his second wife. That's one way to understand it. I'm most inclined to take a more traditional route, which is to see this as actually uh, uh, 
a description of Gomer. Go, again, love a woman. You say, well, but why the really vague language there? A woman. Why doesn't it say Gomer? Why doesn't it say his wife? I'd say, this language is is intentional. I think it's actually inspired this way to to give a sense of distance, a sense of coldness. One reason I think this is because I think I've I've kind of seen a similar strategy in chapter two, verse two, when God speaks and He says, um, "Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband." So, plead with your mother. You can imagine like the spat between a husband and wife and talking to the kids. Go talk to your mother. He doesn't say my wife. doesn't name her by name. There's a distance there. There's a coldness. There's, there's a sense in which not everything is okay in this relationship. And that's being represented here in that kind of vague language. Go love a woman. So he's saying, go, Hosea, even though she's running around on you, she's being unfaithful, she's being promiscuous, Go again. Go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as, see the parallel there? Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. What in the world does that mean? You're like, I love cakes of raisins. I didn't know that was bad. Well, here you go. There's a verse for it. Thou shalt not love cakes of raisins. Cakes of raisins. It is interesting that you're, you're like that. That seems so random. But in one sense, I think what it what it's saying is like this is this is something that actually would literally be eaten during pagan religious feasts that they grew to love so much, right? Um, but in a sense, you could also say I think this cakes of raisins becomes an emblem. It becomes emblematic for them chasing the kinds of things that lead their hearts away from God. So if you wanted to summarize, you know, say, in short, break it down for me. All of these things that their hearts are chasing, they love cakes of raisins. Because that just kind of became emblematic for their whole life of unfaithfulness to God. They're straying of hearts. And so he's telling Hosea, okay, again, your marriage is meant to display something to this nation whose hearts has gone so far astray. Go love her again, even though her heart has been running so far from you. See? At very least, you can go here. God wants us to know something about His love here. How persistent His love is here. Straight in the face of the facts, the ugliness of Hosea's wife's heart and how it is a picture of Israel's heart. Go love her Again, now it continues in verse 2. In order to do this, he has to get her out of the mess that she's in. Verse 2, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. Okay, We don't know all the details here. Just like we don't know all the details about uh, Hosea's marriage. But Hosea's marriage isn't the point, right? The point is, God's relationship with Israel and how Israel is relating to God at this time. In the same way, we don't know a lot of details here. He's buying her out of some kind of situation. Is it slavery of some sort? Maybe. Is it prostitution of some sort? Maybe. Could be a combination 
of things. We don't know exactly what it is, but we can tell very clearly that she is in a very serious mess right now that she's in, and he's going to buy her out of it. Now, it gives kind of the how much it costs to get her out of this situation. This is a homer, a lethic, a barley, uh, th- uh, 15 shekels of silver, and uh, I don't exactly deal in this currency all the time, so I had to kind of read up on it a little bit. But what I basically gathered is this isn't all that much money. In other words, she's not worth very much right now. Like, she has made such a mess of herself that she's not worth that much to her lovers that are using and abusing her. She's not worth that much to anybody right now. Which is kind of what's stunning about this, right? What God is calling Jose to do. Go. Love her again. Buy her out of this mess. Even though she's not worth like, buy her out of it. Now, he continues by drawing out this parallel. But before he does, in verse 4, you have to look at verse 3, and he gives her some stipulations now that he's bought her out of the mess that she's in. He says, and say to her, and I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. Note that phrase. Many days. For a good long while. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. You know that? In other words, he's bringing her out of the situation he's in. He's distancing her from all of her lovers. Do you remember last week the picture that God gave one of his responses to Israel running around and chasing after, saying, I will go after my lovers. These well-worn paths, what did God do? He built a wall, right? Over the paths so that they would hit their head on it when they go to try to run to their lovers, right? He built a hedge so they get all scratched up when they're trying to run away from him, right? Their true lover, their ultimate husband. He hedged up their way. In a very real sense here, he's saying, I'm buying her out of this situation, getting out of the mess that she's in, building up this wall from her and her lovers, getting her out of that situation and all these entanglements and enmeshments in these relationships. But notice here, there's this really interesting phrase in the end of verse 3, it says, So will I also be to you. What does that mean? Well, he's saying, you are not going to have intimacy with any of these other lovers anymore. And I'm going to bring you to dwell with me for many days. But in those days, you're not going to have any intimacy with me either. In other words, I'm not going to act like everything is okay in our relationship. Something fundamental needs to change and it hasn't changed yet. There's been no change of heart and if the walls weren't there, she'd keep running in the same direction as many times as she might hit her head on that wall. Something has to change. So, there's this this very real sense. It's like, yes, out of the mess, but no real intimacy in that relationship. In other words, Hosea is showing tough love. And we're going to see here that there's a parallel to how Hosea is interacting with his wife and how God is interacting with Israel. And that's what we're being set up here in verse 4. So look at verse 4. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days, notice that phrase, many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household God. In other words, um, this 
picture of being brought away from lovers and not experiencing the level of intimacy, spiritual intimacy um, with God or physical intimacy in Hosea and Gomer's case, um, that is meant to be a picture of exile. We've kind of been set up for this from uh, the early chapters, especially chapter 2, where, do you remember, everything would be stripped away, right? And I said last week, that's what's being described here is exile. They're not going to be able to get to all these things that became so sadly familiar to them because they're going to be removed by quite some distance from the things that they have become so accustomed to. You will dwell for many days in exile without king or prince. You're not going to have king or prince. These, These kings that used to and governors that used to lead you astray from me, Right? Most of the time, the track record in Israel wasn't that great, right? And as it went with the king, so it went with the nation, right? And so they would lead them astray, um, after other gods. But the point is, is you're not even gonna have your own king and governing structures. You are going to be under the rule of a foreign foe. You're gonna be without king or prince. You're gonna be without sacrifice or pillar. All these sacrifices that you are used to making to Baals, these false gods, you're not gonna be able to make them. Anymore, you'll be without pillar. These memorial stone, these stones that would be large stones that would be set up, you know, kind of as a portrait of a deity that would be worshipped. You'd be worshiping before these thrones, like they're not going to be at your disposal anymore. You'll also be without ephod or household gods. Ephod, remember, that's part of the uh, the wardrobe of a priest, right? These kind of like the sleeveless vest that covers the torso of a priest. They would the the breastplate would be laid on top of that with the twelve stones, and then there'd be two stones connected to the ephod on the shoulders that would bear the names of Israel as the priest would go in before God. This whole wardrobe is meant to set people apart, set the priest apart as holy unto the Lord, right? But of course, there's nothing holy about Israel right now in the situation that they're in. And household gods, you know, these figurines that would be set up and worship, you know, kind of mobile friendly. <laughs> bring, them, bring them where you are, you know, so that you can continue to fulfill these cravings. You know, make sure it comes with you because you'd hate to go without it for a while. Right? These household gods, small but lethal. All these things and interesting sacrifices and these ephods, these were actually part of orthodox worship, right? These were actually things that were permissible, but what are they being used for now? They're being twisted and now blend, blended into the worship of false gods, right? So you have things that are actually orthodox and a bunch of things that are heterodox and all these things kind of blend together as this pile of yuck, you know, that represents Israel's moral state before God at this moment. You're going to be without these things for many days when you are in exile. In other words, God is going to show you tough love. You're not going to be able to experience the intimacy that you were made for with God because these things are in the way and not everything is okay in this relationship. So this is God showing tough love. And I can't help is I just picture this pursuit that happens in these verses. And I think about Hosea's wife and how she's described here. I mean, there's just almost nothing virtuous 
about this woman. Used and abused, her heart constantly astray, and now she's in this pitiful spot. She's in bondage. She's not worth much. And I have to say, as I read this, I go, boy, apart from Christ, I see myself in her. Like, it's like where I, where I need to be inserted into that story. I mean, it's, it's stunning to think about, you know, how much we have soiled our moral garments before God, a holy God. In the way that we think, in the way that we live, the ways that we have so dishonored God in our lives and how filthy we have made ourselves before Him. We have run to other lovers over and over and over again. And it really is, if we have eyes to see it, a very pitiful position that we are in apart from Christ. And to think that there we sit, not worth much in one sense. You know, made in the image of God, but we have so tarnished that sacred image that's been branded upon our souls. And we're just sitting there, we're just not worth much. Even the lovers are just like, yeah, take it or leave it. But then God pursues his wayward people. He sends his son, Jesus Christ. And I love this verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. It says, you were bought with a price. And she wasn't worth much, but the birth of Christ is infinite. And it purchased out of the messed up situation that we found ourselves in. And it's stunning to me to think, you know, here about God's tough love and how even we, as New Covenant Christians, people who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, people who have been justified in the sight of God, people who have been adopted by God, that we too are people that are acquainted with God's tough love. Would you agree with that? If I had to put a biblical phrase on it, not just one that's part of our normal language, tough love, use discipline. God disciplines those whom he loves. And it makes me think of Proverbs chapter 3. It says, that, it says, Do not despise the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary of his reproof. For the Lord disciplines those whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Or you fast forward to that passage alluded to in Hebrews chapter 12, and you just see, wow, what do we know about how God interacts with his children, with his people? Well, we can know this about his discipline. His discipline is not a, a sign of him despising us. It's actually a sign of him delighting in us. It's not a sign that he's forsaken us. It's actually a sign that he wants us to draw near to him. And he wants to be able to love us freely. The discipline is very purposeful. God's exercise of tough love in our lives is very purposeful. It's not an end in and of itself. Rather, it's pointing us toward a fuller experience of his tender love. And my mind runs to scriptures that just illustrate the heart of God when his people are wayward. Think about that picture in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, when you get this picture of Jesus knocking at the door. And often that's interpreted as 
uh, Jesus knocking at the door of an unbeliever's heart, but really in context, it's Jesus knocking at the door of a Christian whose hearts become cold and hard. The door of a Christian that's been running after other lovers. And Jesus is knocking at the door, and the text expresses it where he's, he's saying, I want to come in and dine with you, sup with you, have fellowship with you. In other words, that you would get to enjoy spiritual intimacy with me. The very fact that that's in the scriptures is just meant to paint a picture in our minds that this is the heart of God, you know, that pursues us when we are wayward, when we stray in our hearts. Or last week I alluded to the prodigal son, right? Last week I brought it up because after God walls us up sometimes and blocks the way to our lovers, we, you know, we run into that wall sometimes, we get headaches, we get all cut up from trying to get through that thorn to get to our lovers. We're sitting there miserable and, and you have that moment like the prodigal son did when he's looking at the pig pods after he's squandered all of his father's inheritance, all the inheritance that he received. And he says, what am I doing? Right? And so we looked at that part of the parable of the prodigal son last week as an illustration, but consider the opposite. While he's rehearsing his speech about how he's not even worthy to be called a son anymore, Right? And he's just like, I'm not worthy to be a son. I've sinned against God. I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. And he keeps rehearsing this the whole way home. And before he can even get his well-prepared speech out of his mouth, what happens? His father runs out to meet him. His father runs out. He's, the father is ready to receive his son home. He's been ready for a long time. That hasn't changed, you know. But it did take a change of heart on the other end. So the door must be open of repentance. You know, there must be a turning of heart. But to recognize the Father's heart when it comes to His willingness to receive. So when there is repentance, a softening, we also recognize that this can be really painful and even humiliating because to do that, we actually have to recognize what? Where we've been, right? And what we've done. So it is painful. And I love how it puts it in Hebrews that yes, the discipline of the Lord is painful rather than pleasant in the time that it happens. But discipline later bears a peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. And so as we hear this text and we see this kind of tough love displayed here, let's remember and, and let's remember afresh and be instructed afresh do not despise the discipline of the Lord, beloved. If you sense the Lord disciplining you in your life, maybe your heart has been cold and you're wayward, this is the heart of a loving God pursuing you in the mess that you are in right now. Every bit of God, He delights in you. And He wants you to enjoy fellowship with Him. Fresh fellowship and fresh experiences of His tender love. And just like we can understand it on a human level, you know, when things are not well in the relationship that we don't just pretend that it is, right? How much more? Oh, infinitely holy God when he interacts with his people. It is painful, but it does bear a peaceful fruit of righteousness. This is the pattern of how God works with his people. And I, I think about, um, you know, why, so why does he show tough love? in order to prepare us to experience his tender love. Think about Hosea chapter 6, verse 1, which I'm very, looking, very much looking forward to preaching. It says, Come, let us return to the Lord, 
for he has torn us. Why? That he may heal us. He has struck us down. Why? So that he would bind us up. This is how God works. His tough love makes way for his tender love. And that's what we need to consider right now in verse 5. Afterward, after this time of exile, after this time of not being able to experience the kind of intimacy that you were meant to experience, afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord their God and to his goodness in the latter days. Afterward, and then connect that with the last phrase, in the latter days. In the previous chapter, it talked about in that day, in that day. From Hosea's perspective, he's looking forward to, along with a myriad of other prophets, an era of time, which you could call the new covenant era. When God is going to do something different. When God is going to remedy the problem, the ultimate problem that is hindering the kind of intimacy that people were made to experience. It's looking forward to a brighter day, a fuller day, a day of, you could say, restoration. And so this new covenant era is, if I had to just give you brief instruction, the latter days, here's a very simple way to think about it that I think is faithful biblically, is it's that era of time between the arrival of the king, think Christmas, and the return of the king. Okay, think second coming when Jesus Christ comes back again. The latter days is is that whole era, this new covenant era that's going to spill over into eternal life. This is what is being portrayed here. This is what's being anticipated. And so a couple of the hallmarks of this era, what God promises to do in this new covenant era is twofold. One, he's going to raise up a king. Okay, He's going to raise up a king. And two, He's going to change the hearts of his people. He's going to give new hearts to his people. He's going to raise up a king and he's going to change the hearts of his people. I want to start by just seeing that he's going to raise up a king. That's what's anticipated. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. Now, notice how closely intertwined those two ideas are. The Lord their God and David their king. In other words, you cannot... Seek the Lord your God if you're not also seeking the king he's raising up. You cannot seek the king unless you're seeking the Lord their God. If you have me, you have the Father. Right? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The idea is you have the Father and the Son. You're going to seek God, but you're going to seek him in the only way that's possible to seek him now in a fallen world. That's through his Son, the king that he is going to raise Now, this was already anticipated in Hosea. Do you remember where? Hosea chapter 1, verse 11. Do you remember that? There was a negative section, and then there's this positive section, and at the heart of it, it says that there's going to be this great ingathering of the children of God, and it says they will appoint for themselves one head. One head, one leader, one ruler, one shepherd, one king. That's what's anticipated here, and that's what's even more explicitly stated here in verse 11. Five. So, this promise of a king is something that is developed throughout the entire Old Testament. But if you had to go down to one of the most foundational promises, it would be Second Samuel chapter seven. I'd encourage you to that brand that on your mind. The promise of a king, kind of in some ways, not probably formally beginning there, but it's kind of 
crystallized there in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And I'm just going to read to you some verses that I'm going to just interject a few comments in because I want you to, I'm going to slow down on this point because this is so important, just developing our theology and trying to understand a God of promise and what his promise is and just to see how widespread these promises are and to equip you to read your Bible as well. And so when you see all these allusions, you have a category to put them in. Okay, these allusions to God raising up a king. So kind of starting at a foundation level, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. It says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, he's speaking to David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. So far just speaking about Solomon. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Hmm. That's a long time for Solomon to sit on the throne, don't you think? One of his offspring. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I shall discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, who I put away from before you. Back to the main point. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So he's giving this promise to David and this promise can be fulfilled in one of two ways. One, there's always a physical descendant of David with, with unbroken secession sitting on the throne of David. Another son's going to be raised up. He's going to sit on that throne. Another son raised up. But of course, exile is going to disrupt some of this, right? So how could God make good on his word? And interestingly, even in verse 4, when it says, for the children of Israel shall dwell many days without a king or a prince. This idea of like, you know, for one who had this promise in mind, you're going, what? Are you going back on your word? Verse 5 says, no. No, God's going to raise up his king. But the other way that that can be fulfilled is to raise up a king a son of David who would sit on the throne forever and would have a forever eternal reign. And that is what gets clearer and clearer as we walk through the scriptures. So take some more passages. Jeremiah 23 verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Jeremiah 30 verse 9. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Now, really quick here, just in case anybody's confused, David died a long time ago. Okay, so he died a long time ago. And we're talking about David being raised up here. And so we're talking about a future, more ultimate David that's going to be raised up. So let's continue with the promises. So, and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Jeremiah 33, verse 15. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called the Lord is our righteousness. Jeremiah 33, 17. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Or, take these favorites. Isaiah chapter 9, 
verse 7. Right before this passage, it says, For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, right? Then it says, Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Or Isaiah 55 verse 3, Incline your ear, come to me, hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. This anticipation for an ultimate Davidic king was built up throughout the entire Old Testament. This is the symphony of the prophets. They were, I mean, this is the song that they were playing over and over again. This was the expectation. For example, in Jesus' day, when baby Jesus, infant Jesus, was brought into the temple on the day of dedication, and Simeon held him in his hands, This man who had been waiting, one of the few faithful in Israel, waiting for the consolations of Israel, waiting for God to comfort his people, waiting for God to usher in that day, that day of restoration. And Simeon took up baby Jesus and he said, Now your servant can die in peace, for I have seen the salvation of the Lord. Why? Because God has raised up his king. Or take Matthew 22, verse 42. When Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, he asks them a penetrating question. He says, what do you think about the Christ? You know, the Messiah, the anointed one. Who is he? Their answer? It was actually correct. The son of David. Then listen to the final words in the final chapter, not the final words, in the, the last chapter of the Bible, book of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 16. These are Jesus' words. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Behold your king. You read these things and you just see how over time, you know, this this anticipation, but for them it felt like forever before this was going to happen. This day that Hosea was anticipating. Brothers and sisters, we're living in the middle of it. Like we are in the day and era of fulfillment. Do you feel that in your bones? The things that they longed for, the thing that they put their hope in, is the very thing that we are beholding, the very thing that we are living right now. God has raised up his king. And a day of restoration has been brought in. But it wasn't enough for a king to be lifted up in the arms of a devout man on the day of dedication. That wasn't going to remedy the problem. It was a great way to introduce him. But what we need is a Savior who's going to reign from the cross. And before he would be exalted to his Father's right hand and take his seat on the throne of the universe where he sits, even as I speak, he first had to reign from a cross on Calvary. Before he got, before he had that that crown of diadems put on his head. In glory, he had to wear a crown of thorns on a cross. And so there he was, suffering for a people so that their sins could be blotted out, so that their garments could be made white and pure, so that they could have a seat at the marriage supper of the Lamb, so that intimacy 
that spiritual intimacy that they were made for might be that we were made for, might be restored. This is what was anticipated. And this is what was ushered in, ushered in when God raised up his king. And I even love that language of him raising it up because not only did he arrive on the scene, but he also rose up out of the grave. And he sits right now as a resurrected and reigning king in heaven, calling all people to himself. God has set his king, Psalm 2, on his holy mountain, on his throne. And now the call to all the nations is, kiss the son and you will live. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. God, one of the two big things he's done in this new covenant era is one, he's raised up his king. Two, he changes the hearts of his people. He changes the hearts of his people. And I want us to see this. And, and uh, this word is triggering to me when it says at the end of verse 5, um, they'll come to David their king and they shall come in fear to the Lord their God. This kind of holy reverence for God. This is a completely different disposition than they had before. Right? So I think sometimes it's helpful. You get down the road a bit and you, you forget what things were like. Right? So you, it's good to take before, after, before and after pictures. Like I remember my basement apartment, it was a dungeon when we moved in. And then we we made it into an apartment. And it's like, I'm really glad that we have those before pictures because you just see the difference of it and you just really appreciate what you have in that space down there. And um, so we get these before and after pictures. Well, what was it like before this heart change, right? This gift of this new covenant that came with the new covenant era. Well, let's get a couple pictures of it. Cheating, going ahead a little bit in chapter four and chapter five, just dipping into it just to get a before picture. Look with me at chapter 4, verse 12. Halfway through, it says, For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. Not a pretty picture. I think it's even more penetrating, this description in chapter 5, um, verse 4, when it says, Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. And notice that word return is in verse 5. They return. But here, their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. Then it explains it further, gives a reason for that. The spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. So what is the fundamental problem for Israel and for every human being? At bottom, there is, within every human being apart from Jesus Christ, a spirit of whoredom. And again, if you're just joining us this week, <laughs> sorry you didn't get the uh, the warnings on the first sermon, but the language in the book of Hosea is intense. God just turns the volume up all the way to make his point because they are on the verge of judgment. Assyrian is, Assyria is going to invade them. They're going to end up in exile if they do not turn on a dime right here. And ultimately, it's true on a whole nother scale, an even greater scale, for human beings that's hearts are running away from God all the time, that the spirit of whoredom is inside them and they can't in themselves return to the Lord because their deeds will not permit them. There's these internal cravings that keep people in bondage. This is the before picture. But God. I love this picture in Jeremiah 
50 verses 4 and 5 of an after picture. It says, Jeremiah 50 verse 4, it says, In those days and in that time, looking forward to that new coming era, declares the Lord, the people of Israel and the people of Judah, and you might say all the Gentiles, because that's how the New Testament describes it, inclusion of the Gentiles, shall come together weeping as they come, and they shall seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion with faces turned upward, saying, Come, let us join ourselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will never be forgotten. That's the after picture. But it begs the question, doesn't it? It begs the question, where does this fear in this text come from? Where does this fear in this text come from? It says they're going to come in fear to the Lord God. Listen to our fighter verse from a couple weeks ago. Jeremiah 32, verse 40. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I might not turn away from doing good to them. And, listen to this, I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn away from me. Where does the fear come from? God. <laughs> Maybe one of the most basic questions I could ask you today, but probably one of the most theological questions, you'll, the clearest, most important theological questions you'll ever answer. Who put the fear of God? Who changed that before, before picture to an after picture? The only way to account for this fear, this change, is that God puts the fear of him into the hearts of people. This is a great new covenant text. Jeremiah 31, verse 33, it says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord God. I will put my law within them. Think about that. What was there before? A spirit of whoredom. But instead of a spirit of whoredom, there's going to be his law written on their hearts. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one say to his neighbor and each to his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. One more text on this change of heart, where it comes from, this fear of God. It says, this in Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, one of my favorites, says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Romans 5, 5 says that he pours his love in his, into our hearts through his spirit. So in other words, putting it all together here, God changes the hearts of his people as a new covenant blessing that we did not deserve. He puts the fear of God in our hearts. That inclines us to appoint a king. That, appoint, that inclines us to seek the Lord our God and David their king. That inclines us to look at Jesus Christ as not just another human being, not just as another prophet or good teacher, but as the king of the universe. 
the long-awaited Messiah, the promised one who would usher in the day of redemption, the only one perfect enough to bear the sins of people that are in a pitiful situation. To, by the purchasing of his own blood, bring us out of our slavery and our bondage and to usher us into eternal life. And I love this here. It says, that last phrase, I'm going to read the whole verse together. After the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in the fear of the Lord and to, the, and to his goodness in the latter days. I, can't, I don't even know all the glory that that word goodness is pregnant with. There is so much glory in there. To be brought into the goodness of the Lord, to taste and to see how good the Lord is. This is something that we start experiencing in this life. I think this is part of what it means when Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He wants us to experience very real spiritual intimacy with him, communion with him. These are the foretastes you get when you are communing with God in prayer. This is the foretaste you get when you are in a sweet conversation with a brother or sister and you just feel like heaven is starting to touch down. So many moments, so many little sweetnesses in this life that come to us because of our because of our union with Jesus Christ and because that reconciliation has happened and because that intimacy has been restored. But let's be honest. Even the most profound tastes of that intimacy here pale in comparison to what we are about to walk into, into glory. Because he is preparing us for a weight of eternal glory beyond all comparison. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart can fully imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. And when we think about God's tough love preparing the way for a fuller experience of his tender love, I want you to think about a verse at the very end of the book of Hosea. You can get a taste of where it's going and what this redemption is all about and this redeeming love that is just pursuing us all the days of our life. And we look at chapter 14 and it says, Return, O house of Israel! To the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. It gives us words to put on our mouth. Take with you words and return to the Lord your God. Remember this? We will return. In other words, we will repent. We will be torn in order that we may be healed. We will acknowledge. We will agree with God about our sin. And then we will experience renewal and restoration. But continuing, I want to go up to verse 4. And this is the verse I want us to linger on as I close. It says, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. Put that together. Because Jesus Christ has absorbed the wrath of a holy God on our behalf, he's able to heal our apostasy. And since God's anger and wrath is removed, and that deep heart problem, that spirit of boredom, has been dealt with because God's put his spirit in our hearts. He's healed our apostasy. He can love us freely. Isn't that amazing? No obstacles. In this life, we feel there are very real barriers. That's where discipline comes in because God wants to, like a good parent, love their child as freely as possible in this fallen world. But it's pointing forward to a day of ultimate. Like he does love us profoundly right now in Jesus Christ. But our experience of that right now 
is small compared to what it's going to be in very short order. I was thinking about uh, something our brother Dwayne Bozer was saying. He texted me, sent me a message earlier this week, and he said, you know, I was thinking about the question, like what, like if someone asked me, like what are you looking forward to more than anything, like in heaven? And you know Dwayne, he's just this just sweet, godly, strong brother uh, in the ripe years of his life. And he, his answer has just been so sweet to me this week. Uh, and the Lord's timing was beautiful. He said, I think my answer to that question would be, I look forward to walking up to Jesus Christ and giving him a huge hug and feeling his love flow into me. I love this big, strong guy. Just going like, I'm just looking forward to loving Jesus. Like hugging Jesus and feeling his love flow into me. And I think that what he's expressing there is really what's being expressed here in this passage. God's tough love has prepared us for a day where we will be loved. Freely. <laughs> like we are going to get swept up in God's eternal love. This love that has existed before any of us, before the foundations of this earth, this love that has been part of the triune experience, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, before, you know, from all eternity past, we are getting swept up into that love and ushered into that joy. That's why Jesus could say, enter into the joy of your master. The Wayne's looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to that. And I hope all of us look forward to that day when we will experience in the most ultimate sense how freely the Lord loves the children of God. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you and we acknowledge, Lord, that so often we feel your tough love when we're straying from you, when we're going our own way, that you set a hedge before us, a wall that we run into. Lord, that, that you do exercise tough love, that you do discipline your children. And Lord, I want to pray that you would help us to see your discipline rightly. To see that when you discipline us, it is for our good. And that you are training us by your discipline. So that even what we experience painfully in moments is going to later bear a peaceful fruit of righteousness in our lives as we're trained by it. Lord, help us, help each of your children not to despise your discipline but to recognize it for what it is. That you do exercise tough love in the lives of your children in order for us to experience more fully your tender love. Lord, I pray that you would give a greater appetite to all your people in this room and around the globe, oh God. A greater appetite to experience that tender love, to greater discontentment and an, an unwillingness to stay in a cold-hearted place to stay in our stubbornness, to have the door locked and be dabbling in darkness inside. God, I pray for your grace and the power of your Holy Spirit to freshly move our hearts and move our hands to unlock the door. Lord, that our greatest desire in this life would mirror the greatest joys of the life to come.
to enjoy spiritual intimacy with you. And Lord, we bless you and we praise you that that intimacy has been opened to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that that is ours for the taking, that we get to experience very real and profound taste of it and that we even get a taste of it this morning. Thank you for your kindness, O oh God. Thank you, Lord, that when we were in that pitiful place, when we were used up, when we had soiled our garments and so defiled your image on our lives, we thank you that even though we weren't worth much, you came after us. That you have pursued us with your redeeming love. That you have raised up a king who would first reign on a cross before he reigns in heaven. I pray that it would be our anthem in this life. That you, that our king reigns. That he's our hope. And we bless you, Lord, for the new hearts that you've given us. And we humbly acknowledge, Lord, that it is only by your sovereign grace that you have overcome that spirit of whoredom in our hearts. That it was you, O sovereign God, that put the fear of you in our hearts that we might not turn away from you. It was you that worked this kind of magic so that not just one side of the covenant was kept, but both sides of the covenant were kept. We praise you for this glorious work We praise you that we get to live in this new covenant era, that you are changing hearts, that you have raised up your king. And, oh God, I pray that just as we sought the Lord that first day, when our hearts and eyes were open to him, I pray, oh God, that we would seek him with vigor until that day when the king returns. Oh God, work that into the hearts of your people. Help us to long for that day more and more. Let us be able to say, whom have we in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that we desire beside you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion. Oh God, be our portion. Help us to long for intimacy with you more than anything else. And God, if there's anything in the way, I pray that we would be zealous and repent. God, help us. Help us not to drag our feet. And oh God, if there's anybody here, I would imagine there are, Lord, whose hearts have not been changed and eyes have not been opened to receive their king. Oh God, please open, sovereignly open the doors of hearts for the glory of your name because you deserve to be worshipped. You deserve to be honored. You deserve to be enthroned on the praises of your people. So get glory, oh God, in exalting your son before every heart here. And Lord, help us now as we turn to respond to what we've just heard. Ignite our worship. Lord, let it be a sweet aroma to you because you are glorious and your redeeming love is our theme and our anthem. In Jesus' name, amen.